I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L dot com. There's been a growing awareness of the importance of pollinators in our food ecosystem, and more and more farmers are seeding pollinator strips to help build habitat for the variety of species that are important to rural landscapes and the production of crops. Amy Barto is with the NRCS and manages the Plant Materials Center in Corvallis, Oregon, where they study pollinator habitat and native plant development. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Bartow about the NRCS's recent initiatives to promote the establishment of pollinator plots and strips. Tune in as they discuss native versus non-native pollinator mixes, the importance of diversity in the mix, the pollination value of cover crops, how no-tillers can make extra income with pollinator habitat, how weed management fits into the equation, and much more. Tell me what your job is. Give me a little background, whether where you grew up, et cetera, and then we'll get into pollinators. Okay. I grew up in Southern Oregon um, in the Klamath Falls area, which is a pretty heavily like farming community. Sure. And I came up to Corvallis, Oregon uh, to attend Oregon State University and have lived here ever since. And what's your, what's your position with USDA? I work for the NRCS. I work in a small program called the Plant Materials Program, and I'm the manager of the Corrales Plant Materials Center. This is no big acreage place. It's kind of small, but you kind of specialize in pollinators? Well, we have a, like a 50-acre research farm, and so we do... The Plant Materials Program focuses on finding vegetative solutions for natural resource concerns. So it's sure. a really broad mission, and we focus on a lot of different things. Um, pollinator habitat has been really important in our area. That's one of the things we do. We've also worked on a lot of native plant development, trying to get all the kinks worked out on how to grow native plants, produce seeds of native plants, and help people understand how to put them back out on the landscape. But we also so, work with cover crops and no-till stuff, so it's lots of different things. But out there, you tend to call it direct seeding where we call it no-till, right? Back in the Midwest. <laughs> well, here no-till means that there's, yeah, the ground isn't disturbed. So tell me what you got going with pollinators. Are people back, I mean, no-till farmers circulates all over the country and some around the world. So there's lots of interest in pollinators. Our no-tillers have always been innovative, so they're willing to try new things like pollinators. So kind of tell our audience what you're doing with pollinators. 
Well, I think, let's see, I would say probably back in like 2008, 2010, we started partnering with Xerces Society just to monitor our native plant monocultures because we were growing native plants in seed production fields. And so our, the first step that we did was let's see what pollinators are on these plants. Like let's start figure out what interactions are there, what, what plants attract which pollinator species. And so that was sort of the first the first step that we had getting into it. And then there became a lot more interest, uh, mostly, you know, through NRCS about creating mixes. Um, You know, people wanted to have these diverse, you know, mixes that they could just sow in these odd areas and and things like that to create pollinator habitat. But a lot of the stuff that, all the mixes that were on the market were all non-natives because that's, that's what's out there. Sure. in the in the flower the flower seed trade um, are mostly non-natives and those are great if you want to um, really take care of an area like if you want to water it and fertilize it um, <laughs> but in our area we have summer drought so we kind of have the opposite need you know native flowers here do very well with no maintenance and so we wanted to put together some mixes that would meet NRCS specifications of kind of having season-long bloom so we decided to create our own mix and then test a lot of other ones that were out there to try to see like what would do well, what would establish well. We did bloom, we monitored for bloom times and bloom abundance, and we monitored for abundance of pollinators. And we did the study for about five years and we repeated it twice just to see if there was variation in establishment upon repeating it. So what would be a normal pollinator mix that you would be recommending these days in your area? And this might actually be good for all areas because I think okay. some of the some of the benefits actually you know translate across the country. Basically extended bloom time. The long the longest amount of time you can have bloom going on, that's great for pollinators and to have diversity in the mix. So not only for the timing of when they bloom, but also the different types of flowers, the different colors of flowers, because that's going to attract lots of different pollinators. And I think pollinators are just like people, you know, having a diverse diet is better for them. They find that pollinator health goes up when they have access to lots of different plants because they're probably getting all their different nutritional needs met, whether it's nectar or pollen and things like that from different plants. So when we think of pollination, people tend to think of bees, but there's many right. more insects involved than just bees, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think most people think of honey, honeybees, but there's right. all types of different native bees, which are mostly solitary, and some live in the ground. And then there's wasps, moths, hummingbirds, and a lot of different kind of flies, and even kind of like beetles and things like that, things you wouldn't even expect, but there's lots mm-hmm. of insects that you know, crawl through flowers, pick up pollen, and, and move them around. So are we going to get some pollination impact off cover crops too? Yes. Yeah, really any flowering plant that produces pollen or nectar creates a food source for pollinators. But even grasses create habitat. Mm-hmm. So even grasses are important in, in low levels um, just to create places for them to live or nesting material and things like that. So around your area, correct me if I'm wrong here, but wheat would be a big crop. Pollinator strip, how would a, how would a no-tiller or direct seeder put in a pollinator strip, and how big would it be, et cetera? I think if you had one that was about 
I think some of the NRCS requirements, and they're different in every mm-hmm, area. Sure. Usually they want it to be maybe like 30 feet wide. Okay. And they can go in lots of different areas, pivot corners, set aside areas, just like not very productive areas, near waterways and things like that. But the width, you know, 30 feet wide ends up being a, wide enough to create enough habitat to be attractive and cut down on the amount of edge. Right. Well, back here in the Midwest, we're we're trying to get away from planting right up the stream banks. Mm-hmm. So if you had a strip that you're not farming, that would be ideal for a pollinator plot, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you could run the pollinator plot and then still, you know, leave, if you have a wooded riparian area, still leave that intact. Sure. So what kind of seeding rates would you use? Out here, so I live in a very, um, what they call it, the maritime climate. So we have pretty mild winters, mm-hmm. ample rain, but then we have summer drought. So the only problem in this area is that everything grows here. Um, we have cool season weeds, warm season weeds, so we have a lot of weeds. So we tend to really to recommend higher seeding rates, like 60 seeds per square foot, mostly to deal with some of our weed pressure. If you don't have as much weed pressure like we, like we have, you can go lower. Or in arid areas the soil and the water can't support that many plants anyway. So then you would go lower, maybe 20 to 40 seeds per square foot in an arid area. And it kind of depends on too, like how big the seeds are in the mix. The smaller seeds have lower establishment rates. So if your mix has a lot bigger seeds in it, then you can go a little bit lower too. So how would you seed these just with a normal grain drill? That's where it gets tricky too with natives, if you're using native species, because like I said, the seeds are really small. So broadcasting usually does a better job of coverage, you know, so you don't end up with rows. You can you can drill and have rows too, yeah. um, but I think broadcast seeding works well. And a lot of these species don't have to be buried deeply. You know, they want to yeah. be like less than a quarter inch. Right. So broadcasting is usually a better way. So the, the general public particularly, and, and maybe some no-tillers, don't recognize the value of pollinators. I mean, uh, we've got a lot we got a lot of crops that we just take for granted that are probably being pollinated and we don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that for me a little? Yeah. I mean, think about any of our uh, flowering food crops. I think all of them are. Grasses, obviously, are wind-pollinated and all the grains are wind-pollinated. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of our food crops that that aren't grasses do it, except for grapes. Grapes are unique. Um, but even here in Oregon, I mean, vineyards are really, really important, but people are still wanting to put pollinator habitat in on their vineyards, not for pollination services, but just all the other benefits right. of it too. And even um, creating habitat for beneficial insects. So we think oftentimes about the pollinator services that we can get, but these plantings also attract beneficial insects, which can uh, help with pest control. We don't have a lot of data on that, but it's something I really wanted to look into is if, yeah, if beneficial insects are helping with pest control in some of these places where we've done um, pollinator plantings. So these pollinator strips probably a food source for birds too, right? Yes. Yeah. So when you have plants that draw on the insects, um, birds not only eat seeds from those plants as they drop seeds, but they track the insects, which then the birds need the insects, which is a huge source of energy um, for the adult birds, but also to feed to their their baby birds. 
sometimes these strips too because they become habitat for the birds, especially for like the grassland birds, the ones that nest in the grasslands or mm-hmm. in these pollinator strips. So they, you know, provide both habitat and food for right. birds too. Well, we got no-tillers back in the Midwest and the Dakotas and Minnesota who are making extra income with selling hunting rights or whatever. And yeah. No-till. And uh, we know the bird counts are higher in no-till because of the stubble and everything, but I would think pollinator plots would help your bird numbers too, wouldn't they? Yeah, because it provides cover. And you know, a lot of times these areas, because they they aren't disturbed. Sometimes there's annual mowing that goes on in them, but they can be these, you know, really important corridors and places of refugia for all different types of, for even like, you know, beetles and pollinators and birds, um, because it is undisturbed. So uh, a good pollinator mix would have both annuals and perennials? Yeah. If you want it to be like a long-term one. So if you want, you know, one that's going to be in for say five years or more, you know, annuals are really important because they put on that, they grow fast the first year, they put on quite a show. So you instantly get this beautiful display of blooms the first year, but they still kind of create space for the slow growing perennials to to do a lot of growing in that first year, but they don't really flower. And then you'll see this shift usually in the mixes where first year you see all these beautiful annuals. Second year, the annuals are a little bit less, but the perennials are starting. Um, and then usually by year three, it, it becomes a more perennial-dominated system. Mm-hmm. And some of our, our native species don't even start blooming until years like three through five. But those are the ones that are going to really last the longest. So you want to give them time to grow and develop. So, yeah, I like I like. I like mixes that have both. So after five years, would you still come back in there and reseed annuals or not? You could. Um, when we've tried that, we've actually had a really hard time getting the annuals <laughs> back into the system. <laughs> and we're not really sure why. Um, <sighs> if things eat them, because um, it could be that you know birds and mice and other things that are in the in the strips eat the seed when you put it down or if the site is just occupied you know if all the space is taken up by the other plants maybe they can't get established i saw a week or so ago on facebook a no-tiller i know from pennsylvania was just fooling around and he was putting in a plot probably of cover crop seed but it's probably going to be a pollinator too because he said he had 67 different varieties of flowers in there and i think he was looking for some great photos by september or october but uh I think he took anything he had and mixed it together and seeded it. Yeah, that's a lot of species. <laughs> right. They won't yeah. all make it, but a bunch of them. No, are. and that's why it's important to throw a lot out and whatever ones make it, make it. And right. all the work that we've done, I've never seen the same composition show up twice. Yeah. You right. know, we'll see the same mix with 25, 40 species. And every time we do it, it looks different. So what kind of money would you be investing in a seed mix like this? It kind of depends on your area because, you know, out out here where we live, our markets are pretty small because Mm -hmm. we're talking about a small area. The mixes tend to be anywhere from, I would say, $100 to $200 per pound. Okay. Um, And the seeding rates, depending on the size of seeds in the mixes, it could be 7 to 12 pounds per acre. Right. Oh, um, that's pretty expensive. It's expensive. but And the reason it's expensive is because it's mostly forbs. You know, it's all flowers. Yeah. The more grass you add, um, that can really bring the price down. Yeah. So if you go more for like one that's 50% grass, 
the cost comes down quite a bit. Yeah. So I don't know what it's like out in the Midwest. I think you guys have a much bigger native seed market and there's just a lot more availability. So it might be like, you know, it might be more affordable. Of course, nobody, of course, nobody's not likely to put in a one or two or three acre plot of pollinators anyways. No, no, they're, they're usually strips. They're small set aside areas. And even in vineyards, when we've done this, they only seed every other row. Um, so it's not huge areas. And we've been working hard with NRCS to try to bring up the, um, the cost share programs to really reflect what it costs because it is, it is expensive. So if you had if you had uh, 200 acres of set aside land, and you're getting the government payment for that, and then you wanted to put in a pollinator strip, can you get the pollinator strip money on top of the uh, set aside payment or not? It would probably depend on what program you're in. Okay. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. I want to say with CRP, there is definitely like a pollinator strip option. And out here, I know that they do what they call pollinator enhancements, which seem to be an additional thing. We'll come back to Frank and Amy Bartow in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Well, we were talking about yields and pollinator strips and everything today, and it reminded me of one of our really top-notch no-tillers in the country. It's David Hula down at Jamestown, Virginia. And in 2017, he harvested 542 bushels per acre of no-till corn at what represented a new corn yield record. And then two years later, he shattered that record with a yield of 616 bushels per acre with corn that was on strip-tilled ground. So he thinks the key to turning out these extraordinary high yields involves help from Mother Nature, irrigation, seed selection, and nurturing the crop throughout the entire growing season. He believes some of today's corn hybrids offer their potential for as much as 850 bushel per acre yields. But to get those kind of yields, Hulda says you have to protect the full yield potential throughout every day of the growing season. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Amy Bartow. So if you're back here in the Midwest, let's say you're in Illinois and you're, you've got 2,000 acres of corn and soybeans and you're going to put in a pollinator strip, have you got to use native plants or use non-natives or you try everything? I think that if natives are available and they'll work well for mm-hmm. what you want to do, I think that they tend to, they just tend to establish better and yeah. not become a problem. But I, you know, I mean, I use non-native plants in my, in my garden. We use them in, in other places because if they fill a niche that a native can't do, then it's still really important. Um, right. So I think it's it's important to look at what your options are and consider um, non-natives that aren't invasive, that aren't going to become a weed problem, mm-hmm. especially if they can 
can fill in a bloom time or fill in, um, yeah, just something to improve upon where, where natives aren't available. Or make so, it cost effective. It's still, it'd still be more important that the habitat is, exists right. um, rather than not. So you just made the comment that it, it would depend on what you want to do with this pollinator plot. What are the options on what you can do? I mean, to me, I thought we'd just put a pollinator plot in and we would pollinate every crop we got. But are there other reasons for doing this? Some of it... Um, it does have to do with erosion. Okay, right. Yeah, and so if you are looking at more erosion control, um, and again, it depends on where you where you live. Like out here, we're likely more have our um, our fall rains are the most sure. likely candidate for causing erosion. Mm-hmm. So we would want to focus on if that was your goal. We would want to focus on having plants that grow really fast in the fall. So you would be choosing plants that can help perform that function right. also doesn't, they don't all have to do it, but at least right. have a, a big base of your mix that can do that. Or if the erosion is more of a season long thing and having really like stiff stemmed plants mm-hmm. in your planting um, that can help trap soil and sediment um, and create filtration and things like right. that. So, when you got a pollinator strip going, uh, weeds could be a problem, or you just make them part of your pollination program. They they can <laughs> perform that you know a pollination function, but um, I even deal with you know on on our own research farm here that weeds are a problem. Like you don't want to give them a place to start you sure. know throwing more seeds out. Um, so weed management is still an issue, and it seems to be an issue early on in the planting usually um if you can still maintain you still got to be on top of the weeds um in these plantings uh because like you said they can they can help like provide um flowers and pollinator habitat but usually you know there's certain weeds on any farm that are just uh not acceptable right and you'd still have to manage them but i've seen people have different tolerances for them too yeah so how would you manage these weeds? You probably can't find a herbicide that would work for no, all these different species. Usually not, unless you had, you know, if you had a solid pollinator planting with no grass in it and you had a grassy mm-hmm. weed, you could use a grass-specific herbicide. Right. But typically, I think it would be spot spraying. So our, our no-tillers probably aren't excited about starting a pollinator crop into bare ground, can they can they make it work with no-till seeding or do you need the bare ground? It's tricky and it, <laughs> it has a little to do with seed size again. Like okay. we've really struggled to get small seeded species established through a lot of thatch and a lot of material on the surface. Um, so if it's, most of these species do prefer bare ground, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be tilled. Um, sure but they usually need good, you know, seed to soil contact. And the smaller they are, that means they have to be way down there on the surface. Would there be any benefit to a no-tiller of kind of summer fallowing this strip land to get to bare soil and then no-tilling into it? Yeah, and that would give them another opportunity to kind of control weeds Yeah. in the area too. Right. What, uh, is there more interest in pollination or pollinator strips than there was two or three years ago or is it the same or what 
I've definitely seen an increase in it um, over the past five years. It's mm-hmm. been really big. Yeah. Um, but I'm also seeing a lot more interest even in what we call more of our, you know, not non-traditional crops or the non-row crops, um, right. orchards, vineyards. We've been seeing a lot more um, different types. Because I think the vegetable growers around here, the large scale um, growers have been interested in this, but now we're seeing um, different producers being interested in how they can incorporate this into their farms. Mm-hmm. Do you have? Is there? Are there any facts that show what the value of pollinator strips are in different crops or not? They're probably out there. I'm trying to think. Xerces Society is a great resource. And there's been a lot of work, especially down in California, Mm -hmm. um, about because if you don't have to purchase bees and bring bees in to pollinate your crop, um, and usually it's much cheaper to have habitat. And even if it's annual habitat that you install, um, it's usually cheaper and more effective Mm -hmm. um, than bringing in bees. Well, these honeybees are some of the most traveled uh insects in, in the in the United States. They go from California with almonds to Michigan for cherries and Florida yeah. for oranges in a whole in one year. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a lot of um you know information out there recently about all the problems that right. have been going on in the in the bees. And so creating on site habitat, um so you always have your pollinators there for you, um, mm-hmm. can really help deal with the uncertainty of being able to right. have bees brought in. We're familiar. We've, we've got some no-tillers here in Wisconsin, maybe 60, 70 miles from us in the Milwaukee area. And they live in, they live in, on the outskirts of a town of maybe 12, 15,000. And, and what they've done is they've got the uh, high school FFA classes interested in putting in these pioneer strips on their farm. And so they've got these kids coming out and doing it. And then they see the real value of this. And then they're, they're in an area where they get lots of traffic driving by, and the, the, and the wife said to me, we always stick some sunflowers in there because then people think it's really pretty, and then they'll start asking questions, mm-hmm. and we can explain the pollinator strips to them. Yeah, and a lot of people have to – I've just learned it just throughout my career that a lot of people have to see it yeah. um, before they really can buy into it. Um, right. So anytime people can do demonstrations – on it and have it out there. People see it, they become more interested. And so there's just, it just increases the awareness and, and people are more likely to adopt it if they, if they, if they have something in their mind of what it, what it will look like. And cause there are problems with it. I mean, it can become a source of weeds. They do take maintenance. Um, it, you know, it's almost like another crop. It does take some work and planning. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about maintenance. What's it take to maintain these strips? Most of them need an annual mowing, and okay. where you live can kind of um, change the timing. We tend to mow late in fall, mm-hmm. and that just sort of like knocks down the thatch, um, opens up the the crowns for the perennials to grow up the next year. Well, mowing wouldn't be any problem for uh, mm. farmers. They already got a mower, so yeah. But sometimes that's it. I mean, like I said, though, in the established, the first couple years during the establishment, um, you got to stay on top of the weeds. And then they're usually pretty good. 
So, in one of your pioneer mixes, how many different things might you th might you recommend putting in there? Ten, fifteen, more than that, or what? Ours are usually around twenty. Okay. Yeah. We've got people here in the Midwest doing ten or fifteen different seeds and cover crops now. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and diversity is always good. Not only like we're talking about for the bees, so diversity is great for all your pollinators in terms of there's different food sources, different shapes, different sites, different in different pollinators will use different types of flowers. Like a right. bumblebee is going to use a very different type of flower than a sweat bee. And that, but then that the diversity in those plants also translates into diversity in your soil organisms too, which is the purpose mm -hmm. of having diverse cover crops. Right? right. So, so it's the same thing, um, you know, in these pollinator strips where um, having lots of, Diverse plants can also improve your your soil organisms too. So okay. a typical no-tiller in Illinois on cover crops, he's growing corn and soybeans, and he's putting in a cover crop late October, early November, or maybe early October. And he might be doing something as simple as cereal rye or annual ryegrass, or he might be doing something that had five or six things in it. Tell, let's talk about the pollinator value of a cover crop and what might he add to this cereal rye that would do him some good. And I mean, he's going to kill this cover crop or at least crimp it down in the spring. So he's mm -hmm. not going to get a year long, but what benefit is he going to get out of a cover crop in regards to pollination? Well, one of the most important things to provide to pollinators is early season bloom. Okay. Because a lot of times when the you know, like the the bumblebees are a good example. The queen bumblebees emerge from sleeping all winter and they need food. So the, mm -hmm. the more pollen resources are out there early in the season means that they can um, grow that first, you know, brood of, of babies and worker bees um, quicker. Sure. And then, so it's because they t tend to have multiple um, generations in a, in, a, in, in like the full growing season, the earlier they can get started, um, then they can start making more. So early pollen resources are really, really important. And depending on when you're going to take your cover crop out, usually um, there can be some bloom. Like our standard cover crop mix on our farm here is we use cereal rye, common vetch, crimson clover, lacy facilia. Okay. Um, and so we we kind of throw in the lacy facilia simply for pollinators. Mm -hmm. It does create really good fall cover, also. Um, and we let it we let our cover crop go for a while. Um, not not so things are setting seed, but we do get um, at least three weeks of bloom, mm -hmm. I'd say, off our cover crop before we terminate it. So three weeks of bloom in your area. What would that be on the calendar? Usually in April. Okay. Early April. Right. So those wouldn't start to warm up here until first of April, and we would plant corn or soybeans in late April or early May, so we should get some bloom by then. Yeah. Every little bit helps, I think. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lasseter once more. 
One of the comments we get from readers once in a while is what's some of the crazy things that have happened at the National No Tillage Conference over the years. And we're coming up on the 30th annual edition of this. And it reminds me that we haven't done this so much lately, but at one time, if a cell phone went off during the general session and somebody rang, we would ask the guy to donate $10 that we'd give to charity. And I've seen speakers stop what they're doing in mid-sentence and point at the guy and said, I want your $10. So it was a way that we raised some money and had some fun and hassled a few people who forgot to turn off their cell phones during the general sessions. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Amy Bartow for this conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillpharma.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Mental Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.